Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. One of the challenges of travelling is that you turn up for one or two sessions, you get to say one or two things, and you know that there's a lot that you'd love to say, but you haven't got time to say it. Um, on, on Friday night, when we talked about uh, dating or courting, the issue, you think, I wish all the parents had been here. Um, most important resource I've ever created, I think, the search for intimacy. Uh, you need to know how to help your kids do courting well. Um, this is a kind of thing that every family should at some point take their kids through. Nine sessions on a theology of sex, why virginity matters, how to find a life partner without experimentation, hurting yourself and other people, and then if mistakes have happened, how healing can come. I was going to do a message tonight called From Judge to Father. I can't because I feel I've got to do something else, but I wish I could. Judge to Father, it'd change your life, particularly you, Pastor. You'd love that one. It would really do you good because I think you fish, you fish too often. I think it's, it's got to stop, man. Too much fishing going on there. I want to talk to you about one of the most important principles that has ever crossed my heart or my, uh, my mind. If I tell you the title straight off, you'll stop listening because it sounds too complicated. Well, let me give you a little introduction before I tell you the title of my message, and then I'm going to unpack for you what I think is one of the most helpful insights for life that you will ever hear in your life. How many people have ever heard of Noah? Put your hand up if you've heard of Noah. Okay, and some people haven't put their hands up. Uh, the, the elders will be around to see you tomorrow morning because this is a very important thing and they're going to have to explain to you who Noah is. How many people have heard of Noah? Come on, put your hand up. Yeah, have all heard of Noah. Great. Noah is an interesting man because at the end of his life, everybody else was dead. Uh, everybody except his wife, his three boys and their wives. Eight people. Only eight people survived the flood. Question, why Noah? Why would Noah survive and why would his family survive and nobody else did? Great question. Try that question on Saturday night, Friday night. Come on, that's a great question. Listen, read your Bible. Difficult questions are answered in the Bible. Here's the reason why Noah survived and no one else did. Now, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, a good man blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God brilliant why did Noah survive because he was a good man he was blameless amongst the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God what a brilliant thing it must have been to have him for your dad I mean if you'd had anyone else for your dad you were toast You'd wake up every morning and you'd be saying, Dad, Dad, I'm so grateful to you, Dad, you little ripper, Dad, because if I had anyone else for a dad, I'd be dead. But Dad, because you were such a good man, because you were blameless, Dad, because you walked with God, Dad, <laughs> I'm still alive. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. Must have been amazing to have him for your Dad. Question. If it was so amazing to have him for your Dad, and these boys were so blessed because their dad was so good. How come just a couple of chapters down the Bible, one of these very fortunate boys ends up being cursed? Good question. Difficult question. Read your Bible. Difficult questions are answered in the Bible. 
come up a couple of chapters and this is why one of those very fortunate boys ended up cursed now Noah was a man of the soil he proceeded to plant a vineyard and when he drank some of its wine he became drunk and lay in the nutty inside his tent and Ham the father of Canaan saw his father in the nutty and told his two brothers outside <laughs> boys dad's lying around in the nutty but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backward. They covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they wouldn't see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So why did this young man end up being cursed? Well, because his father was a bad man. It's a bad man who gets so drunk he doesn't know if his clothes are on or off. And that's a paradox. See, a paradox is an internal contradiction. Two things you should never find together. How can it be that my dad is such a good man, the only reason I am alive is because of him, but he's such a bad man, the only reason I'm cursed is because of him. Well, that's a paradox. But did you notice it wasn't Noah who ended up cursed? It was his son. Because his son did not handle the paradoxical behavior of his own dad appropriately. I want to talk to you tonight about the parental paradox. Growing up with people who bless you and sometimes put little stumbling blocks in front of you. Who bless you and present you with a problem. Because I promise you, you've got to understand this, unless you're planning on having perfect parents, unless you are planning on making sure that there are no imperfections in your mum and dad, you better understand how to manage the parental paradox because it'll be you that pays the price if you don't. Now, if this was only the, the only time you ever, it ever appeared in the Bible, well, we could just say, well, that's not a principle, Al. Uh, that's just one of those things but you see it occurs in the Bible more than once in fact there's one book of the Bible in which it becomes virtually a subplot and that's the book of 2nd Samuel now in the book of 2nd Samuel we've got a hero a really good man the key good man in 2nd Samuel is the great King David now in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, David hears that King Saul has been killed on the battlefield. Saul's been hunting him for years and finally the dude is dead. So what does David do when he hears that the wicked king, the naughty king is dead? Does he jump on his grave? Woohoo! Woohoo! The wicked king is dead. No, he doesn't do that because he's a good man. He writes a song of lament. How are the mighty fallen? And he honors a fallen hero in chapter 2 the tribe of Judah come to David and they say Davy you're such a good man you should be king over our whole tribe and David is crowned the king of Judah in chapter 3 David starts having his family now it's a little different than the average family because he's got six wives but is this man ever a great man because every one of these women start popping out sons like peas one after another six women six firstborn sons wife number one produces son number one his name is Amnon wife number three produces son number one his name is Absalom 
And these boys are growing up in the house of an absolute national hero, David, you little beauty. In chapter 4, David discovers that Saul's uh, relative Ishbosheth has been murdered. And rather than uh, honoring the people who killed Saul's offspring, he puts them to death because here is a good man. He's sticking up for principles and for what's right. In chapter 5, the whole nation of Israel come to David and say, you're such a good man. You shouldn't just be king over one tribe. You should be king over the nation. And they, and they uh, anoint him king over Israel. And finally, David captures Jerusalem. For the very first time, that city is captured and becomes an Israeli occupation. In chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and sets up Jerusalem as the capital city and the center of worship for the very first time. In chapter 7, God comes to David and says, Davy, you're such a good man. I'll make a promise to you, mate. There is going to be a king coming out of your body who's going to reign over Israel forever. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. And he's known as the son of David. In chapter 8, he has one victory after another. In chapter 9, he adds another victory to the whole lot. And in chapter 10, he defeats the Ammonites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11 is a bad day in the office. Spots a neighbor's wife having a bath. Invites her over for a game of chess. Turns into a very vigorous game of chess. He gets the girl pregnant. What do you do when you get the neighbor's wife pregnant? Well, you bring the neighbor home from the war. He'll sleep with his wife and nobody will know whose kid this really is. But here is a man who is so loyal to David and so loyal to the men he commands. He's not willing to have one night with his wife while men under his command are risking their lives on a battlefield. He sleeps on David's doorstep. How do you honor a man for that kind of loyalty? You murder the guy. And murder and adultery is a bad day in the office for the average man. In chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet of Israel, comes and puts his bony finger in David's face and says, You, sir, are a bad man. It's a bad man that commits adultery and murder. And that's a paradox. It's a paradox that David can be described as the man after God's own heart, and yet he's an adulterer and a murderer, and here am I, I'm mentioning it again 3,000 years down the track. But watch it spill over into his family. In chapter 13, Amnon, his eldest son, gets the hots for his half-sister Tamar, drags the girl into his bedroom and rapes the girl. What's daddy going to do about that? Well, it's very hard for daddy to discipline the eldest boy for rape when he's just been exposed as an adulterer and a murderer by Nathan the prophet. Daddy does nothing. But the girl has a big brother. His name's Absalom. He waits for two years for dad to fix up the family crisis and when he doesn't, decides to fix it himself. He murders his brother and skips town one dead son he waits for a couple of years for a phone call from his dad surely dad's going to notice this time around didn't notice when my sister got raped but I bet he notices now he's got a dead elder son 
But David never makes that phone call. He never hears from his dad for a couple of years. And, and after a while, he gets so fed up with his dad's inactivity, he gets his friends, his father's friends, to agitate, to let him come back to Jerusalem. And his dad lets him come back to Jerusalem. And he still doesn't make that phone call. Now, finally, seven years down the track, this kid is so angry, he's burning things down. Eventually, him and his dad do have that, that conversation, but it's seven years too late. In chapter 15, that young man is standing in the gates of Jerusalem telling anyone who's willing to listen, would that I was king in Israel. In chapter 16, he goes after his dad's throat. And in chapter 17, the entire nation is in civil war as this boy goes after his own dad. But in chapter 18, the young man is hanging by his hair from a tree and three javelins are sticking out of his chest. And his father's in an upstairs room sobbing his heart out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I could have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? It's a paradox. That's what it is. It's a paradox that a man can be this good and this incompetent at the same time. A great kingly leader can't even manage the crisis in his own home, partly because he caused it himself. But did you notice that David isn't dead? Two dead sons because of the paradoxical behavior of their own father, but because they didn't handle his paradoxical behavior appropriately, it's the kids who pay the price. And you say, that doesn't sound fair to me. I'm not here to tell you what's fair. I'm just here to tell you what's true. Parents are at paradox. Um, because of your parents, you have been marked for good. Whatever good there is in your parents has, been, has, has, has marked you. Whatever inadequacy is in your parents has also marked you. Because we are such relationship-oriented beings, we pick up the vibe of our family of origin, our family home, and we pick it up precisely. Have you ever noticed how a baby learns to talk, learns to speak language? Language is one of the most precious gifts you'll ever have in your life. Well, there must be a big government department somewhere that's helping these kids to, to, to learn language because, blow me, they, they get born with none. They haven't got any. No one's born with a language. Um, there must be a big government department. They must spend a lot of money and have big, you know, big textbooks and a lot of experts helping all these little kids. But that's not how it happens, is it? No. See, I speak English. Not an easy language to learn. But I never, I've never been to, to class to learn how to speak English. That's not how it happens. All they do is you get born and they put you in a house. And I, I have no idea how this little learning computer manages to pull it off. I have no idea how the baby lying there in the pram or in the crib can figure out the difference between real speech and Uncle Harry and his... But they do it. And it only takes a little while and the, little, and the miracle starts to pop out. Mama. Dada. No. <laughs> Who taught that kid to say no? Oh, no one had to teach him, mate. He's just been hanging around with you. And we pick up the vibe of the family of origin so precisely. 
you can listen to a two-year-old child say one sentence and in one sentence you'll know if that kid was born in Ireland or Scotland or England or South Africa or North America or Australia or New Zealand because we don't just pick up the big building blocks of vocabulary the big building blocks of grammar we pick up the the language of our family of origin so precisely that you can hear that musical lilt in a child and you can know oh that kid comes from Scotland funniest thing in the world we had a family in our church who was Scottish um, kids were born in Australia you talk to them outside of the family home and you'd reckon they were as normal same as any other Australian kids but you ask him tell me Joel what's your dad's name and suddenly this Australian kid says my dad's name's Buddy <laughs> what's that about well the only time he ever hears his father's name is when his mother's saying it Buddy Buddy We are so precisely marked by the family in which we were raised that the good stuff in your parents' hearts and lives has marked you. But so have the deficiencies. So much so that healthcare professionals, when they're trying to help people untangle the struggles they have with life, they sit and listen to a person and one of the first things they try to get a handle on is what was the family of origin like? Because a good health care professional, a counsellor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist can hear your story and see the fingerprints of your parents all over your life. They'll see it in the issue of who you marry, why you marry, if you marry, They'll see it in your career choice, your ability to say, stay married, the way you do your marriage, the way you express intimacy, the struggles you have with intimacy, the way you parent. They'll see it in, the way, in, the, in how you relate to people in general. They'll see it in the struggles you have with self-esteem. They'll see it in your propensity to alcoholism, to drug abuse, to sexual abuse, to uh, obesity, to anorexia, to... Uh, frigidity or promiscuity to homicidal rage or impotent passivity they will see the fingerprints of your family of origin in every area of your life and God knew that that would be true God knew that you would be marked for both good and for harm by the imperfections and the perfections in your family of origin and as a result he's got something to say to you because God wants your life to go well God doesn't want anybody. God has not set up anybody for failure. And as a result, you're going to need a skill in order to make the most out of life. You see, God knew that you would be marked for good or harm. Um, and God knew that we're not always very good at picking that. We're not always very we Often we have a tendency not to see our parents uh, through a, a a lens as clearly as we ought to see. It's funny, you talk to some siblings and they, you, one sibling can see no good and you talk to another sibling from the same family, they can see no wrong. We have a tendency to polarize our view of our parents rather than see them as they really are. And that's so dangerous because it's marked us. And if you don't understand what's really there, you are repeating it without realizing how often that you're doing it. But God also knew something else. He knew that not only would you need a skill in order to come through the inadequacies of your family of origin, 
He knew that you were going to use, need that everywhere. Hello? Everywhere else you went. Because not all of the paradoxical people live at your house. They live at other people's houses too. And you, one day you would end up marrying one of them. You would get a job and go work for one of them. You would move into a neighbourhood surrounded with paradoxical people. You would come to a church that was full of paradoxical people. And if you had not learned the skill of managing relationships with an imperfect person, you would find yourself struggling with divorce and getting a sack and creating problems in your workplace and troubles in your community. You'd never be able to stick in the church for very long. You'd be banging your head against a brick wall everywhere you went because you're going to bump into imperfect people everywhere you go. You're going to need a skill if you're going to do life well. And God knew that you were going to need the, that skill. And so I've got one question for you. Who wants to hear what God has to say to people who have to learn to live well with imperfect parents? Who'd like to hear? Anyone, is there anyone here? I, I, I see, I'm a, I'm a democratic preacher. Uh, if I haven't got 50%, I'm going to preach a different message. How many people would like to hear what God has to say? We haven't got, haven't got a majority yet. It's really important. Because I can do one evolution creation. It'd be, be boring as all get out, but you'd love it. Maybe. Who would like to hear what God has to say to people who need to learn the skill of relating well to imperfect parents? Let me see your hand. All right, now we've got a majority. Okay. Don't come to church and be passive one of the greatest dangers we have in our walk with God is passivity we hear but don't respond and one of the reasons I ask you the question is simply little ways of responding are so important more important than you can imagine alright I'm going to do it I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you uh, God's extraordinary wisdom and insight to help you manage grow past and survive uh, imperfect parents you're going to love this. If you've got a little white card, you might want to take it out and write this down, what I'm about to say. You can put it in your pocket, pull up at the, the lights. You've got to relate to an imperfect person. You can pull it out and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Put it back again. Be really good. <clears throat> what might be a bit of a peeve is when I say it, you already knew it, and uh, it didn't work for you yesterday, so how's it going to work for me tomorrow? Well, we'll take it as it comes. Here it comes. This is God's Word to human beings that have been touched for good and for harm by Less than perfect, perfect parents. Because God's wisdom for you is he wants life to go well. Here it comes, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. You shall honor your father and your mother. I do not hear a ripple of gratitude running across this auditorium. I see stunned faces. Blow me down. Just when I thought the dude was going to say something useful, he comes out with that nonsense. There you go. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's always sticking up for old folks. Yeah. You know why he's always sticking up for old folks? Because he's the ancient of days himself. That's why. Yeah, you honor your mother and your father. Honey, what a bunch of rhubarb. Fair and we know what God wants. He wants us to pretend mum and dad were perfect. That's what he wants. 
He wants us not to notice that our mum and dad were in people. In fact, poor old Ham, he comes home and he finds his dad lying there in the nutty. Well, he shouldn't have noticed that. He shouldn't have noticed. No, he should have said, oh, that can't be my dad. In fact, what he should have done is he should have done a Sergeant Schultz. He should have come in, so dad's lying there nutty. I see nothing. I see nothing. Only your father and your mother. <laughs> what a joke. Yeah, yeah, typical Christian rhubarb. Don't rock the boat. Maintain the status quo. Pretend mum and dad, well, if I told my mum and dad all the things they did that hurt me in my life, they'd be slashing their wrists. That's what they'd be doing. If I told my mother and father all the ways they let me down, they couldn't sleep at night. But hang on. God never said, honour your father and your mother so they can sleep well at night. God never said, honour your mother and your father so they can feel good about their parenting skills. He said, you shall honour your mother and your father that it may be well with you. God's concerned for you. And he knows that if you never learn how to do this, it'll never be well with you. It doesn't matter where you go in life. It doesn't matter how hard you try. If you don't understand the skill that is necessary to truly honour an imperfect parent, you won't do marriage well either. You won't do church well. You won't do business well. You won't do community well because you're going to bump into them everywhere you go. You say, well, I don't understand. I don't get it then. How am I supposed to honour an imperfect person? Well, you've got to understand what the word honour actually means. The word honour is the Hebrew word kabed, which means to allow something to be as heavy as it really is. But you see, it's not a word that just means notice the good stuff. See, it's a word that is used both positively and negatively. God is saying, I want you to notice the good that has come your way through your mother and your father and I want you to let it be as good as it really was. Let it be as heavy and as significant as it really was. Because you see, the funny thing about us is that we have a tendency, when somebody hurts us or peeves us, we have a tendency just to cross off all the good stuff. We kind of feel like we're justified in just eliminating that as if it never happened. We do it at church, at home, at work. You know, if someone said, no, no I'm going to leave that church. Why? Well, I, someone said something and I didn't like it. Well, is there nothing good going on? The, well, that doesn't matter. I got hurt. I'm going to go now. <laughs> you just crossed off all the good stuff because something negative happened. Well, flip, you're going to be leaving everywhere you go. Was there no good stuff there? Oh, yes, there was, but I got hurt. See, God says you don't get to do that. Uh-uh, no, no. No, you don't get to do that. You don't get to cross off the good stuff. You are to allow the good stuff to be as heavy. You've got to honour it. Let it be as heavy as it really is. And on this side of the equation, you have to learn a skill. And the skill is called gratitude. Do you know one of the reasons why people don't worship they don't worship because they don't feel very grateful. They've been hurt. Something disappointed. Last time I was here, I spoke to you about complaints against God. You know, you get a complaint against God, you feel something didn't work out the way you want. You feel like you've got the right to cross up every good thing that ever came your way through the goodness of God. I don't have to worship. I'm not happy. No, no, you don't get to do that. 
you have to let the good stuff be as good as it really is and that's a skill you see it takes a skill you've got to learn to do that you've got to let the good stuff be as good as it really was you know so what if my dad went to work for 40 years and put a roof over our house and food on the table he said something I didn't like yeah I get that we'll, we'll get to that but you've got to let the good stuff be as good as it really is and you've got to learn to honor it let, it, let it be as good as it was and learn to demonstrate and express gratitude because if you don't, everywhere you go, you will be repeating this your inability to honor what's really the good stuff. In church, in your work, in your marriage, in your community you'll be crossing off the good stuff you'll be walking around like you was baptized in lemon juice <laughs> but God doesn't want you to pretend there was no bad stuff you see the word honor is used both positive and negatively on the negative side God wants you to notice what wasn't good he wants you to notice what was unhelpful for you he wants you to see it and he wants you to let it be as bad as it really was because if you don't, you are, you are doomed to repeating it over and over again because it has marked you. You have learned the language of life in that household. And you don't see it for what it is. And you don't see it as bad as it really was and as unhelpful for you as it really was. You can't do the skill on that side of the equation because the skill on this side of the equation is you've got to learn to take hurtful stuff to Jesus and you have to learn at the foot of the cross to truly forgive people and set your heart free in the grace of God. Now, there'll be some of you people sitting here today and what I just said isn't that hard to do because you've had pretty good parents, just like me. See, what I just said is not that hard to do because my mum and dad were really good people. There will be some people sitting here today saying, yeah, Albert, you don't realise my life you don't realize what I was going through you have no idea I had a parent that was absent I had a parent that disappeared on me I had a parent who was neglectful a lot of things were I got really hurt because things were seriously overlooked in my life I didn't get to go to the dentist sometimes I didn't have food and sometimes there was stuff was missing in my family there'll be occasionally you'll have someone say yeah I grew up in a home where a deeply with a deeply flawed parent See, every time I say this, I think of my own wife. Helen grew up in a home with a deeply flawed circumstance. Her mother died when she was eight years of age. Her father became a functioning alcoholic out of the pain of losing a wife. Later on, in order, in concern that he was raising a teenage girl, entering her teenage years without a woman in the house, he married a woman with mental health issues and brought her into the home, and then she got raised uh, under the oversight of a woman who really needed help. What are you going to say about her, Al? Well, by the way, I see the fingerprints of those years on her life to this day. We get marked by our background. And every now and then you'll bump into someone whose mum or dad have been deeply, deeply wicked, even wicked. They're not just flawed, but um, they were downright wicked. They were abusive. What are you going to say to those people, Al? Exactly the same thing. See, I acknowledge that your hill is higher than mine, but it's the same hill. See, if I don't tell you the truth, if I give you permission not to have to honour, then there's no hope for you because this is, this is your way through. This is your way out. 
you have to learn to let the good stuff be as good as it really was and learn gratitude. You've got to let the bad stuff be as bad as it was. You've got to learn to truly forgive. And I'll be occasionally, you'll bump into someone and say, oh, yeah, well then, <laughs> what am I got to be grateful about? Abused by my father, hopeless, pain-filled background. Well, you do have something to be grateful for. If the only thing you can think of to be grateful for is the fact that you are alive, you've got to let that be such a big issue to you that you, you, you find a gratitude in your heart for even really destructive parents because, because of them you are alive. You may well have survived the worst life can ever throw at somebody. You've already made it out. You've passed, you've passed the biggest test in life that you'll ever see. But if you don't learn to honour the good stuff, the fact that you have a life, you are doomed to despising yourself because you are the life they generated. Let me read to you something that Dallas Willard wrote some years ago. He said, If you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that you've been given the gift of life, you are condemned to despising yourself, for you are the life your parents generated. If you never press through your disrespect or rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. A long and healthy existence rooted deep in the soul requires that at some level we be grateful to God for who they are, not necessarily for all the things that they have done. And it may well be that if you're here today and you came from a truly difficult background, one of the first things God would want you to begin to do is to begin to be thankful for the fact that you have a life and honour this, this simple thing. I had parents who, who maybe wounded me profoundly, but because of them I have a life. God can't bless an empty chair, but for you, sweetheart, for you, sir, you have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Amen. You have everything that Jesus came to deliver. Don't despise yourself because of that tough, difficult background. Now, I've got to be honest and say, thank God I don't have that big a mountain to climb. My mum was nearly perfect. Of all the things, if I look back on my mum, the imperfection would be that um, she was such a modest woman that we found it hard to have conversations about really personal things. I remember one day sitting in the, when I was taking Helen out and trying to work out in those early years whether I was in love with Helen and whether this could go anywhere. I remember sitting there one day and I said to mum, I'm, I don't know if I love Helen. And she said, well, do you have to know? And I said, well, I guess not. And that was the end of the conversation. So it, 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 was, not, it was not profoundly helpful. But my mum was an extraordinary woman. She was a wonderful woman. My dad, on the other hand, I pick a couple of things that I wish had been different. You see, my dad had two ways of relating to me when things didn't go well. On one hand, he might go completely silent and withdraw and not say a word or, 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 or address an issue because he was disappointed. And the first time I ever saw that, I was only four years of age. Um, we made a kite together. It was fun. We went out and flew it in the park, and it was fun. I was doing something with Dad. Dad's a school teacher. He went off to school. I'm not going to school yet. I'm only four years of age. So I'm bored. So well, I'm going to fly the kite. I headed off across Belmore Road, which would have given my mother a heart attack if she'd known that. Four-year-old crossing Belmore Road. That's not a good idea. But I, into McClay Park I went, and I can still remember the day. I can picture it in my mind. The wind is blowing through the trees. The trees are roaring, and there's black clouds scudding across. This is not a day to fly a kite. And as a result, I wrecked the kite. Bounced across Belmore Road, all tangled up. 
When Dad came home and saw the kite was wrecked and all tangled, this sad look came over his face. He never said a word. He never fixed the kite and we never flew it again. It's like he drew, just took a backward step. Now I'll tell you something amazing. The first time I ever shared that story was in my own church. At the end of the message, one of my staff came up to me and said, Alan, do you realize that you do that to us? I said, what? He said, you know, you told about your dad? He said, that's what you do to us. He said, you don't yell at people when you're unhappy. The only, reason, only way we ever know that we've upset you is that you start looking at the carpet and you don't say anything. I said, no, I don't do that. And he said, honestly, you do. And I said, oh, really? Well, you're sacked. <laughs> Didn't do that. I mention a story from the age of four. And in my 50s, one of my staff say to me, Al, that's how you handle us. That's how profoundly we are marked by a family of origin. See, I'd never actually processed that and asked myself the question, am I doing that to other people? Do I need to take this to Jesus and say, Lord, I not only want to forgive my dad, I want to get beyond this as a way of handling life. Second thing my dad might do if, if I upset him is he might blow up in my face. And the worst encounter I ever had with my dad's explosive temper was when I bought a bicycle tube, age of 14, 14 years old. I had a paper round, had a puncture in the front wheel of my bike. Uh, instead of uh, buying a pic, uh, fixing the thing, I bought a brand new tube with my own money from my paper round. And when my dad heard that I'd bought a new tube instead of fixing the old one, he tore a stick off a tree and gave me the thrashing of my life. It alienated me from my father because I couldn't figure it out. I thought, excuse me it was my money i was not smoking the tube dad it's not marjoweenie dad it's a bicycle tube i bought with my own money get a grip mate i th thought who could ever have figured out buy a bicycle tube get the daylights beaten out of you could never figure that out uh, but i kind of withdrew from him because i felt like i could never know again what will press your buttons i could never have figured that one out but if you'd asked me in my uh, later years, Al, um, have you got unforgiveness towards your dad? No, I, I would have said, no, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It wasn't until I was 35 years old and I was counselling a woman in my office one afternoon and she had nothing good to say about her father. And I said to her at one point, have you ever done a treasure hunt? Because you see, you've got to learn this. You've got to learn to let the good stuff be as good as it really is. And if you, if you reckon there's no good stuff, we better go looking for some. And so we did a treasure hunt. And the more we wrote down, the more she realized there was good stuff there. And by the time she left my office, it had totally changed her perception of the kind of person she'd had as a dad. Now, when she left, I realized, you know, I've never done that myself. I've never done a treasure hunt with my dad. And I sat down at my desk in my office and I began to write out the good stuff that I had in my life because of my father. He loved my mother. He loved God. He taught us to love the scriptures. He, taught us, he took us to worship. He was so faithful. He was so honest. He was so true. I started writing out all the good stuff. And the more I wrote it out, the more I realized I've blown a lot of this stuff off. I've discounted it. And that day I sat down and I wrote my dad a letter. I said, Dad... I've never told you how much I appreciate the great things that you brought into my life. And I began to list them all down. And at the very bottom, I said, and Dad, whatever stability I have in my life, I owe that to you. I sent it off to my dad. 
Now, the funny thing is my dad never mentioned that letter to me. He never acknowledged that he ever got the letter. I wouldn't have known. It was my mother who uh, one day said to me, well, your dad got that letter, you know. And when the letter came, he'd been in a bad mood for three days. And he was so excited by that letter, he wanted to go down the street and buy a picture frame and hang it up in the kitchen um, because it was like a note from God. It was on church letterhead paper, you know. And... She said, Roger, you can't do that. But he never mentioned that letter to me. It didn't make an ounce of difference. I had let the good stuff be as good as it was and I had honoured it. I'd, let it I'd, I'd added gratitude to that. And as a result, from that day, I loved my father. He became so precious to me. Every time I'd go meet my dad after that, I'd put my arms around him and I'd kiss him right in the face. He never knew what to do with that. <laughs> it was like a little telephone pole. When I let the good stuff be as good as it really was, I realized what a gem God had put in my life. Now, I'll tell you a couple of other things that really helped me as well. The first is this one. Helen said to me one day, Alan, you don't know enough about your dad's background. You need to get him to take you back home to his hometown. Get him to tell you all his family stories because he had a family of origin too. So we went home to his, the old gold mining town of Malden one day and Dad took us around all day, told us the stories. He, told, he showed us the little classroom where he'd gone to school as a child, told us stories that were kind of interesting, talked about how he'd found these sheep droppings and put them in a paper bag and took them to school and told everyone they were aniseed balls. <laughs> Understood a little bit about my own naughtiness about that point too, I tell you that. He showed me a dam where his friend had drowned when he was 15 years of age. I, first time I understood, well, every time we were going down the river, Dad would be freaking out. And I thought, what's wrong with you, man? Fanny can get a life, it's just the river. When you buried a friend, it changes the way you view your kids going down the river. He showed me a little white house where his mother had raised nine children as a single parent. He showed me where he used to herd cows as a child and how he'd get paid a halfpenny, and he'd take the halfpenny home and he'd hand it to his mother. I watched him do that all his life. He'd come home on payday and just hand his check to my mum. Mum was a great manager and he honoured her with that. For the first time in my life, I understood that belting that I got when I was 14 years of age. See, I grew up at a time where a young man could have a paper round and spend his money on himself. I used to love payday. I'd go straight to the milk bar, buy myself a, a big lime malted with a big scoop of ice cream in it. My dad grew up in a very different time. He grew up in a home with a mum making ends meet with nine children and every child in the house bringing home whatever halfpennies and pennies they had and adding them to the family budget. And one day my dad saw me buy a bicycle tube instead of fixing an old one and I pressed a fear button in his past and he blew up in my face. Now I could have done a number on that one, I tell you. I could have gone to my dad that night and said, Dad, today the Spirit of the Lord's revealed something to me. The Spirit of the Lord's revealed to me that you've been under the grip of the spirit of poverty. The devil got his hooks in you as a child. And all your life you've grown up under the grip of darkness and evil. And as a result, I bought a bicycle tube once and you nearly killed me for it. But today the Spirit of the Lord is flowing like a river through my soul. And as a result, I just want to tell you, Dad, I forgive you all your sins and iniquities with which you've ever offended me. And I release you in the grace of God, be blessed by my humble little self. I could have done that didn't need to do anything like that I just had to hear the story and I got it 
Other people have families of origin you know nothing about. And often their paradoxical behavior upsets us. We've never had to walk a mile. I never had to walk a mile in his shoes. And out of that, all I had to do is hear the story and say, you're a great, you're a good man. Dad, if I'd ever walked a mile in your shoes, I don't know who I would be, but I love you. Last thing and then we're done. We often don't appreciate the fact that people can only ever be who they are. They can't be everything to everybody. They can only be who they are. My dad's silence when I offended him was not helpful for me. I wish my dad had been more of a communicator, that he'd coached me more. He either blew up my face or attended to go silent. But he could only be who he was. One day my brother said to me, you know, Al, I was having a talk to dad the other day about the Second World War. And he got to a point where he told me about how one of his friends had got shot in the head. And at that point he just stopped talking. And after a little while I realized he wasn't going to say anymore, so I got up and I left the room. I came back through the room 20 minutes later and Dad was sitting in the same place as silent as a mouse and tears were just pouring down his face. And I thought, you know, how different my father is from me. If that had been me, I wouldn't be sitting there silent. I would have been groaning and moaning and carrying on. But my dad was a silent sufferer. When things hurt him, he'd just go quietly inside and deal with it there because that's who he was. He could only be who, who he was. He couldn't be everything to everybody it didn't help me but it helped me to realize lord whatever the inadequacies there are in me as a result of that lord heal my heart help me to communicate better i forgive him completely for for whatever inadequacies there are because lord i want to carry your glory everywhere i go i want to tell you something tonight if you could learn to reflect a little on your family of origin and learn to truly honor imperfect parents. If you could learn to let the good stuff be as good as it really is, as it really was, and add to that the skill of gratitude. If you could let the bad stuff be as bad as it really was and add to that the skill of genuine forgiveness, you will be the kind of person who can succeed everywhere you go in life. For you shall honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you father I pray tonight for my friends I lift my hands over this congregation I pray for the young men and the young women sitting in this place today I pray that you might uh, help them grab this skill that it would carry with them for the whole of their lives in every imperfect relationship I pray for the old ones in this room who as they sit here tonight would, would be thinking back on many, many experiences in life. Holy Spirit, come to us. Heal our hearts. Restore our hearts. Teach us to truly honor imperfect people. If you've come to church tonight and as I've been sharing this, it has deeply touched you because you realize You've seen things you've never seen before. And before you leave tonight, you want to say to God, heal, heal my heart. Help me, Lord, to do both the positive and the negative appropriately. I want you to lift your hands. I want to pray over you. If that's you, just lift your hand right where you are. Father, you see these hands. You know the story. You know the story. I pray, visit them. Meet them. 
comfort them and say, I'll help you. And it'll strengthen your life. One last thing. You may have come to church tonight and you have never invited Jesus to become the captain of your salvation, the captain of your life. But sometimes in the middle of a service, our hearts get soft. God draws near and our hearts get soft. And that's the time to make a decision. You can't make a decision to love God when your heart's hard, but you can when your heart is soft. And if you make it when your heart is soft, it can stay that way. If you've come tonight and you've never deliberately said to God, I've made mistakes, forgive me. I want to be a healthy human being. Come into my life. Be my strength. You've never done it, but tonight you do. I just want you to slip your hand up and I want to pray for you right where you sit. If your heart is soft, do it now. If your heart's soft, do it now. Is that you? Father, I pray for this congregation as they reach out in the coming years into this community. Make this a house, not only of salvation, but a house of thanksgiving. Bring healing and hope to every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. It's been great to talk to you tonight. If that's not helpful, then uh, I'll give you money back. <laughs> but I know it will because it came straight from the Word of God. God bless you. Have a wonderful life. Wow, another outstanding message tonight. Put your hands together again for them. Goodness gracious me.